1: By all accounts, Americans are ready for a full-on embrace of summer after two years of cautious living because of COVID-19. They are ready to enjoy all the wonders of the season, diving into the ocean, sandy toes at the beach, lazy naps in the hammock, and slow swings on the porch, and long, uninterrupted hours of reading, firing up the e-readers, dog-earing pages of new books, and revisiting old favorites. Author Jeanette Walls once wrote about the summer reading of her past, describing the one special benefit of this time, saying each day we had more light to read by. Summer readers, grab your book bags. Three of our local librarians return with recommendations from 2022's best books, from historical fiction and young adult stories to science fiction and romance. It's our annual summer reading special. Joining me remotely, Susanna Boristan-Tukach, Senior Librarian at the Cambridge Public Library. Hi, Susanna. Hi, thanks for having us. So glad to have you back. Robin Brenner, Teen Librarian at the Public Library of Brookline. Welcome back, Robin. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. And Veronica Coven-Mattese, Reader Services Librarian at the Boston Public Library. Hi, Veronica.
4: Hi, Callie. It's wonderful to be back with you all.
1: Well, as you know, this is one of my favorite conversations of the year, so this is just a delight. I want to remind all of our annual listeners that we always start off asking the question about your philosophy of summer reading. And I have to say, in past years, I've said I use it as a time to, yes, read some escapism kinds of fare, but... I also generally have tackled some kind of serious tome-like thing uh, because it feels like I can take the time to do it. Let me just say to all of you, I'm doing none of that this summer. It's all escapism. And I have to say, by the looks of your recommendations, I think you're all falling in line with me. So, Veronica, is that right? My philosophy
4: of reading year long is to only read the stuff that I really enjoy. But yes, I think even more than usual, it's all about the the books that I know that I'm going to enjoy, the books that are exactly what I'm looking for. And at least for me, the summer is a great time for me to read the books that I actually own that I have bought over the last couple months, mm-hmm. and like really attempt to tackle the ones that have piled up a bit. Oh well,
1: that's good. How about you, Susanna?
0: Yeah, I think my summer reading philosophy has evolved a little since you started asking this question. I think I used to say that with the warmer weather, I was a little more receptive to tackling challenging reading and reading outside my comfort zone. But I don't know, COVID winters have been very hard. I think I just want to kick back and read what feels right in the moment now. So I think a lot of people this year and last have really turned to comfort reads. And I am one of those people. So that said, if summer feels like a time for you to, you know, read the annotated Moby Dick or some edifying nonfiction book, do that. But if it's a time for romances and thrillers that you can just consume in a beach day, I say do that. So, or do both.
2: Right. And Robin, where are you? Um, I'm kind of in the middle in that I think for, as with everyone, the last few years, it's been kind of all comfort reads all the time, just to uh, be able to read it all, Um, but I feel like I'm getting a little bit more of my reading ability back now, so I'm actually tackling slightly more complicated um, and different books uh, than than the kind of typical escapist fare. I do love a good adventure or romance, but I think that for me, I've also been able to sit down and actually tackle some books I knew I would like, but I was having trouble getting into. So I, I always say, you know, do what works for you, obviously. <laughs> um, but I think for some are, sometimes that gives you the space to tackle a more complicated or tougher topic. But I think a lot of times we all fall back
1: on the fun ones. Well, I'm falling back on the fun ones this year. <laughs> Veronica, uh, let's pick one of your, I want to pick one of yours because uh, since you put it on your list, I've gone through all of your lists, but one particular one is leapt out at me. It's actually the first one on your list, which is Portrait of a Thief. Talk to us about that.
4: Absolutely, I'm I actually after I made the list but before today I just finished this book, and it is a really interesting book I have to say slightly different from what I normally would read. Um, it is a explicitly anti colonial heist novel. <laughs> the premise is that a very wealthy Chinese industrialist hires five college students to attempt a global heist to steal back five pieces of looted art that are currently residing in Western museums that refuse to repatriate them. I thought it was like a really impressive debut. This is Grace Lee's debut. And there's some local interest also. Part of the book is set in Cambridge. One of the protagonists is a senior at Harvard. I will say like sometimes the heist aspect itself was a little less heisty than I wanted it to be. I thought that sometimes it was a little stretching my imagination that they were really going to get away with this. But at the same time, it was so refreshing that this is a heist planned by, you know, five college students who have never done a heist before. And they're basing all of their research off of watching Ocean's Eleven. Um, and it's, it's so cinematic. They have these car chase scenes that are really amazing. And I, I was really impressed by how, how nuanced it was in talking about different identities within the Chinese diaspora. Mm. Um, because some of the characters are first first gen second gen third gen um, and they have these conversations about what it means to them to be Chinese to be Chinese American um, like why it is aside from the cool 10 million that they all stand to take home if they pull off the heist like why they're willing to risk their futures to to steal
1: back this art for China interesting all right Susanna pick one from your list
0: Sure, I I like to use this opportunity to tell people about my favorite book of the year that sort of flew under the radar. And so my first book is The Town of Babylon by Alejandro Varela It came out in March of this year. And in this book, it's set post 2016 election, but pre-COVID, we meet Andres, a gay Latinx professor of public health. Andres, in the midst of grappling with his husband's infidelity, returns to his working class hometown in Long Island to be with his ailing father. And his visit just happens to coincide with his 20th high school reunion, which leads him to fall into habits with old friends and rekindle things with his first love. Um, And Andres is one of the few people in his graduating class To have left this town, so he experiences his time back home sort of as this outsider looking in at an increasingly struggling community, which is rife with addiction and endemic health conditions. And so that's sort of the coming-of-age story at the heart of the novel, but given the author's background in public health, this book is more notably a scientific but compassionate observation of contemporary America, and we see how immigration, economic unease, and racial disparities in healthcare, especially intersects to create these polarized communities like the one that we get to know through this book. Um, I would recommend this to anyone who enjoyed Brian Washington's book Memorial, which came out a year mm-hmm. or two ago, um, mm-hmm. and also Douglas Stewart's Suggy Bain.
1: Okay, very good. Robin.
2: Well, I'll continue with the heist theme. Um, I'm I'm a sucker for any book that involves a heist, and one of the young adult novels I really loved this past year is a book called Little Thieves by Margaret Owen, and. In this case, it's also a fairy tale retelling. Uh, One of my favorite fairy tales as a kid was The Goose Girl, Mm -hmm. um, which is one of the grim ones. So it's very more grim than most. Actually, it's one of the creepier of the fairy tales. And it involves a maid swapping positions with a princess. And usually the story is told from the point of view of the princess. And in this case, this book is from the point of view of the maid in terms of why would she do that? Why would she betray her mistress and take over her life? And she's very much the villain of the original story. And in this case, she's now the heroine.
3: Hmm.
2: Um, And what I like about this one is it's very specific in that it's set in a kind of a medieval Germany that's more evident than you see in sometimes in retellings of fairy tales. But also there's a really wonderful sort of rich fantasy world you're going into. And in this case, Vanya is the lead character and she is the adopted daughter of the embodiment of death and fortune. Um, And death and fortune are in fact great characters (laughs) in the story. And I love the kind of sense of humor that's throughout the story, despite having some dark aspects, it's very silly at times, and there's a really great wit throughout the whole book. But I think my my favorite thing is that it's all about The classic she has to pull one last job in order to get out of and into a new life that she wants to get away both from death and fortune and from a god that she's offended. So it's got a lot of the typical fantasy richness that you see when people build fantasy worlds, but at the same time, it's really driven by the characters and by the kind of wild ride of the heist as you go through. Um, It's also very nicely diverse in terms of a kind of a variety of flavors of queerness go through the whole story. The two main characters are somewhere on the asexual spectrum, and it's just a kind of nice adventure book that I really loved this year.
1: Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Susanna Boristan-Tukac of the Cambridge Public Library, Robin Brenner of the Public Library of Brookline, and Veronica Coven-Mattacy of the Boston Public Library. And we're continuing an hour-long conversation about summer reading recommendations. Next pick from you, Veronica.
4: All right. I'm actually going to do a two-for-one because these are a Hmm. matched set. Um, I am I'm imagining that we have some some Bridgerton fans listening.
1: Of course. Um, <laughs>
4: thought that they would be really perfect, both of them for Bridgerton fans. So the first one is A Caribbean Heiress in Paris by Adriana Herrera. And that is about a Dominican rum heiress who is in Paris for the 1889 exhibition where she meets a Scottish whiskey distiller. This is Herrera's first historical. She's better known for her contemporary romances, but the premise just struck me as so perfect and so timely for all of the all the people who finished season two of Bridgerton and want more very, very strong female friendship as well as the romance. Hmm. Um, and then the other one in this match set is A Lady for a Duke by Alexis Hall, which is also a historical romance. This one is properly Regency era about a trans heroine, which I hadn't actually seen in historical romance before. It it may exist, but I haven't seen it before. This is a a very sweet and thoughtful romance, which if you've read Alexis Hall's other works, tend to be a little more snarky. I thought this one was just genuinely very sweet. It's about a trans woman who has effectively faked her own death and rejoined society as her sister-in-law's like lady companion when she finds out that her best friend, pre-transition is just absolutely devastated by what he thinks is her death. And so she goes only to realize that he he doesn't recognize her and he is very mm-hmm. much in love with her, not having recognized that she knew him before. Wow! Again, also, yeah, it, it was, I, I was really impressed. Again, perfect for Bridgerton fans who are eager to explore
1: more of the Regency world. As I move to you, Susanna, let me just say that I'm noticing out here in the world that there appears to be a lot of interest in historical fiction. Is that just my sort of take on it? Are you seeing that as well, Susanna?
0: Yes, it doesn't really fall in fall in my general wheelhouse of reading, so I don't have my finger on the historical Fiction pulse as much as maybe some others, but I see it particularly cropping up in romances these days. A lot of sort of placing queer characters into historical romances and sort of reclaiming that territory.
1: Okay. All right. So, what's your next pick?
0: My next book is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. She is pretty well known for her book, The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery, which came out several years back. And this novel comes out July 5th, I should mention. Um, This novel opens with Sam exiting a subway car in actually the Harvard Square T station, appropriately, and running into Sadie for the first time in many years. Uh, Sadie is an estranged childhood friend who he first deeply connected with over video games while he was in the hospital recovering from injuries suffered in a car accident that killed his mother. Now, they're both undergraduates at Harvard and MIT, respectively, and Sam and Sadie fall back into each other's lives and bond over video games again, but this time they are designing the games, and before they even graduate college, they create their first blockbuster video game and practically overnight become huge icons in the gaming world. Um, I admittedly have pretty minimal interest in video games myself, (laughs) but this book encompasses much more than that. It is about being a woman in a male-dominated industry. It's about how we process loss and explore our identity through art and design. And it's about the inevitable consequences of wealth and fame. Um, And because, ultimately, it is a book about video games, it's also about the healing power of playing games, both for kids and adults. And I thought a lot about the movie uh, version of The Social Network as I read this, and also thought it would appeal to readers who enjoyed a Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara, which was very popular a few years ago.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Robin, give me your next pick, but also I'd love you to answer whether you've seen the trend that I'm imagining and, uh, of uh, great interest in historical fiction.
2: I do actually, I have seen an uptick in interest, which for teens is actually more unusual. Um, I don't always get that many teens that are asking for historical fiction. But this year, I did see more and more teens actually interested in different types of historical fiction. So for example, I have two on my list. So the first is called The City Beautiful by Aidan Polydorus, and it's set during the Chicago World's Fair. And it's one that I loved partly because it's a very specific about the Jewish population there, the immigrant population in Chicago at the time. So this is in the 1890s, and um, involves the kind of mythology around dibbux, um, which are the kind of possessing spirits of the dead that become a a part of the problem in in this particular story. I love it partly because I think the World's Fair is always an interesting setting. And it's also one of the few books i've seen it's also critical of what the world's fair at that time represented of what this idea of the white city what that would mean to someone who is not good enough to be considered allowed at the fair or would be an exhibit Um, so it's an interesting book it's beautifully written it's one of the the ones i've read recently where i really admired the writing Um, and i also like the kind of look into the labor movement at the time and there's just many different aspects of it that I thought were really fascinating. So I learned more about the city and the period and that population, as well as it just being a really good mystery. And then the other one that that's another mystery that's a different period in place is the Red Palace by June hur which is set in the court in Korea in the 1700s. And that's another one where it's an immediate sort of, you know, kind of mystery where you start off with dead bodies and uh, you're brought in to solve the crime. And one of the protagonist is a nurse at in the court who's caught up in all of the political intrigue that you might expect exists, and a young investigator that's trying to uncover the crime that might involve the royal family. So as you can imagine, that's complicated very quickly. Um, both of them have a really good sense of place and time, and I'm glad to see more teens actually interested in kind of learning about different periods and places that way.
1: Hmm. Veronica, I didn't give you a chance to answer my theory about historical fiction what What about you
4: i I think it always goes in waves people are in- i've what I've seen a lot of is kind of people with new takes on history exploring um exploring other other voices in history that we maybe haven't heard from as much um I don't read straight historical fiction terribly much um but definitely in, and this, I think in, in fantasy, this is a trend that's been going for, for several years now. Um, the idea that you want to take, you know, like a historical or mythological story and kind of see, oh, like how, what, what would this look like if you were looking out of somebody else's eyes rather than the story that we've already heard. And de- definitely that's, that's, a I think that's a, a snowball that's picking up momentum as it, as it travels down the hill. I don't think it's starting right now. But I, I think that it's it's getting more momentum and becoming more visible. Like what what you saw with um you know like Circe, um, mm-hmm.
1: which mm-hmm.
4: was, you know, like blew my mind Huge that it. you know Huge why it. so many mm-hmm. people wanted to read about the Odyssey. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's, inc- it's incredible. But but that's but that's something that you know you see more and more of in historical fantasy now. Actually, um I will I will segue into my next pick. Okay. Because I I thought that it was another another example of this trend of Okay, there's a story that I that I know what would that story look like if I was telling it from someone else's perspective, hearing like what a different character was thinking at that time. So, a uh, very recent release Kaikei by Vaishnavi Patel, which is a retelling of the Ramayana from the perspective of one of the female villains. I have to admit that I'm I'm like 50 pages into this. I just started it yesterday. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um but, but so far I am enjoying it so much. And as soon as I picked it up, I thought, oh, you know who would love this? Everyone who loved Circe, everyone mm. who loved Ariadne. This is exactly um, you know, it's a, a different story, but an, also a different perspective on a story that you already know. I'm really enjoying it. It is it is a chunky book that is it is it is a large book. And so I have I have many pages still to go, but it is really delightful so far.
1: Uh, for people who don't know what the original telling of Ramayama is, why don't you explain? Oh gosh. Okay. Um, shortly, <laughs> briefly. Shortly, uh, <laughs> the
4: the romance of Rama and Sita, which is oh gosh, I'm going I'm going to embarrass myself. It's a it's a traditional um, Indian mythic text, kind of similar to you know the the equivalent of the Iliad or the Odyssey for for Western audiences. You know, like one of those big epic quests. Okay. Um, and uh, Ram, Prince Rama is is on a quest to to win the hand and rescue Princess Sita. And this is, I believe, a story from the perspective of his his wicked stepmother.
1: Hmm. Okay. Um. Here's a round robin question uh, for all of you. Just a quick your quick take. I'll start with you, Veronica, because you're speaking. Writing or story? Can you recommend a book or get into a book if the writing is just okay, but the story is great? Or vice versa? Oh
4: gosh, um, I think it depends on your mood. Sometimes, mm. sometimes I I think that I am willing to forgive more for a compelling story. Sometimes there will be a book that I I will look at and I'll think, you know, this writing is so beautiful, but I'm just so bored. I don't, you know, like I don't know where this is going. Um, and some, and sometimes you'll you'll read a book and you and you'll think, gosh, that was that was so beautiful. What was it about?
3: Um, mm. Yeah.
4: My, my, my my usual example for that, and it a it, it, uh, somewhat somewhat sad occurrence. Um, the the fantasy author Patricia McKillop just died, um, and I will I will always tell people, you know, you will love reading her books. The prose is so beautiful. You will finish that book, and you will have no idea what you just read. Um, <laughs> what happened in that book? I couldn't tell you. Um, but I think if for a for a book with a really compelling story, I'm I'm willing to forgive <laughs> if the okay. if the writing is only so so.
1: What do you say, Susanna?
0: I am almost always in the writing over story team, but I would also add character
2: over story
1: Mm -hmm. to that equation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Robin?
2: I think for me, it very much depends, but I am someone who is very driven by plot. So if nothing is happening, then I get very tired, even if the writing is excellent, and I will just be like, something needs to happen <laughs> in the first 100 pages or else I'm going to stop. And this comes up a lot as someone who reads a lot of teen books, who generally do, you know, focus on plot and use plot very well, versus, you know, the stereotypical sort of longer adult novels, I, I will get more impatient with because I'll just be like, why has nothing happened for 200 pages? Um, but I, I do love good writing, so it'll it'll push me through if I know it's worth it. And especially if people have really recommended it, then i'll I'll keep trying.
1: Okay. All right, that's Susanna's pick. Go ahead, Susanna.
0: <laughs> yes. well, apropos of that question, I like to read at least one book each summer that is quiet and meditative and relatively plotless. So here is that pick for you. Um, it is Seven Steeples by Sarah Baum. It just came out in April. And seven steeples tells the story of Belle and Cy, a young couple who leave their fast paced city life behind and move to a cottage on the Irish coast with their two dogs. They intend to stay for not too long, maybe a year or two, and on the day they arrive, they resolve to climb this mountain that looms behind their house uh, spoiler alert they do not climb that mountain that first year. Or the second year, and suddenly they've been living there for three, four years, and they simply have not climbed the mountain. They've just fallen into this quiet routine and sort of meshed into one person, which you might be able to relate to if you've been in a long term relationship. Um, And what follows is not so much a story, but a log of the couple's habits and sort of an inventory of all of the small tasks and objects that add up to make a life. Um, It's a humbling look at how short a life is, which at times is kind of A bummer, but also just makes for a very calming, comforting reading experience. And it's written almost like a prose poem. So some paragraphs are offset like stanzas. Uh, So if you like a side of poetry with your novel, you might like this one.
1: Oh, very good. All right, Robin.
2: I'll go with one of the ones I really love this year that is incredibly beautifully written, but also very compelling. Um, And that's All My Rage by Saba Tahir. And this is one of those novels that many people know the author from a previous series that's uh, fantasy, um, which started with an uh, Ember in the Ashes, which was a great series and I actually really loved it. But this is a departure for the author in that it's realistic fiction and it's about Pakistani-American teenagers in California and two teens in particular, salad and Noor, who are in the midst of having their friendship be Challenged and broken by the fact of one made a confession of love and the other one didn't know what to do with it and ended up in a fight before the book even starts. But then it becomes also the story of uh, one of their parents and the kind of experience of being second generation and the way this story worked. I found both. Every single chapter, I was kind of pulled in by the way it was written and how beautiful the story was being told for the emotions of the characters. But at the same time, it never felt so dense or so forbidding that I, could, I didn't want to immediately keep reading. It's not an easy book. There's a lot of tough topics that are covered in terms of both of them have trauma in their past that they've been hiding. Both of them have secrets they've been keeping from themselves and from their families. And a lot of it is about learning to trust and reveal those things, reveal the vulnerable parts of yourself to the people that you care about. Um, there's also a fair amount about faith and different languages and the way that we talk about our um, our families and our lives. So it's just one of those books that I was really, really struck by. I'm hoping it's going to win lots of awards. Uh,
1: we'll see. Wow. Okay. Veronica, back to you.
4: All right. I'm also going to pivot a little bit. This is a, a, a book that is very different from what the author has written before but i think will still appeal to people who like her previous work holly black's adult debut book of night which is um what some people call urban fantasy some people call low fantasy it's it's fantasy but set in our world in a a fairly grim part of our world it's it's set in i believe in in mount holyoke Hmm. in massachusetts and the protagonist is you know, she's, she's getting by. She used to be a con woman, and she's gotten out of that as much as she can, but she keeps getting pulled back in. Magic is real. She doesn't have magic, but it's a important part of the criminal underworld that she is somewhat unwillingly still participating in. Um, and she gets, speak- I, I know we've talked a lot about heists here. This is, um, not not the one job that will get you out but the one job that gets you back in she's offered a chance to finally get revenge on on someone who destroyed her life a long time ago and so she is she is determined to to take that chance to get revenge even though she is blowing up everything in her own life as she goes along and she can see it happening like as as you're reading along this is I felt that this was a really great example of you know like what is described as an unlikable female protagonist but I liked her so much because she's making horrible decisions at every single step. And you're so frustrated. But at the same time, she's in such an impossible situation. And you think, well, you know, what, what else could she do here? What else? Like, what, where is the better choice? It was, it was such a tense story, um, really, really full of unpredictable twists and turns. and And I have to tell you, it has a horrific cliffhanger. You're you oh. to throw that book across the room. Oh um, my god.
3: <laughs> but wow. it was
4: so good. It was so good. I was I was really I was just blown away. Um if you've if you've read Holly Black's Curse Worker series for young adult audiences, I think that you will really like this one also.
1: Okay. Wow she's got us uh, on edge there. Susanna what what's your next pick?
4: My next pick is a contemporary
0: romance to add to the historical romance selection and this is You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty by and Macy. Macy has recently become a hugely prolific writer. Just in the past few years, they've put out a couple of young adult books, a literary fiction novel, a memoir, just recently a poetry collection, and now this book, their first trade paperback contemporary romance novel. And this book follows Faye Adekola, a visual artist just at the cusp of her big break in the New York art scene. And when the book opens, Faye is begrudgingly re-entering the dating scene per the urging of her best friend, Joy, just five years after losing her husband in a fatal car accident. And to her surprise, Faye pretty quickly meets a charming man named Nasir at a rooftop party and gets swept into a sort of casual romance with him. Nasir, I don't think, takes it very casually and invites Faye to his family's retreat in the Caribbean. And also connects her with a gallery there that will exhibit some of her art. So she jumps at this opportunity to live in a tropical oasis for a few weeks because why not? And because I don't want to spoil anything for you, what follows is an emotional roller coaster, a shocking love triangle, um, and Faye learning how to move forward with this, the enormous loss of her husband to carve a new path for herself, both through her art and her relationship to others. And as an added bonus, um, one of the lead characters in this book is a celebrity chef in this island paradise. So there's just a ton of good food writing set amid this backdrop of sandy beaches and mountains. I just like fell through this book in a single day. It's not necessarily a meet cute, feel good romance. It's messy and kind of hefty, but it's compulsively readable and very funny at times.
1: So like life, in other words. Yes. (laughs) Okay. All right, Robin, you're up. Oh, all right. I will say, let's see. Well, I'll go with another
2: uh, romance. I did just finish I Kissed Shara Wheeler, which is by Casey McQuiston. And most people know their books from uh, Red, White and Royal Blue. But this is their first young adult novel. And it was delightful. It is everything you want uh, from a Casey McQuiston book. It was very funny. It was very witty. But it also was distinctly teen. It was uh, about teenagers and deals with a lot of the kind of Typical issues in some ways. Um, The premise is fairly simple in that it is a a young woman named Chloe who had a competition to be valedictorian with another student, Shara, um, for the entire time of high school. And then suddenly Shara proceeds to kiss three different people, including Chloe, her boyfriend, and uh, Rory, who's a, a longtime crush. And then disappears. So all of them kind of unite to try to figure out what happened to her. And um, so it feels a little bit like your typical almost rom-com setup. Mm-hmm. And what I like about it is that it gets a lot more complicated than that fairly quickly. Um, you think you kind of know what's coming and then you realize, no, that it isn't what the story is about. If anything, it is it is about romance, but it's also about uncovering things you don't know about people and learning to kind of understand that your preconceptions of people are often just that. Um, They're they're judgments that you've made only on the surface. And that if you stop and take time to get to know people, there's something more behind, for example, the typical high school quarterback, um, that they may not be what you think. So there's a lot of that. It's, it's, very delightful as a trip through this, the kind of machinations of the plot and uncovering the different clues and trying to figure out what happened. And then it becomes about finding your family and finding your strength
1: among your friends, which is always a good message. Mm -hmm. I will also note that it's a a pick of Veronica's as well, so that's a a recommendation from two out of the three of you for this particular book, I Kiss Sarah Wheeler. Coming up, there's no shortage of exciting choices from the latest books to hit library shelves and Kindle downloads. We're continuing our hour-long summer reading special. More of our conversation next on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Welcome back. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. We're using the full hour for our annual summer reading special. Joining me, Susanna Boristan Tukac, Senior Librarian at the Cambridge Public Library, Robin Brenner, Teen Librarian at the Public Library of Brookline, and Veronica Coven-Mattacy, Reader Services Librarian at the Boston Public Library. All right, let us um, let me start this way before I go return to your list, because a number of your picks reflect the broad and wonderful diversity of who we are as Americans and various stories. Um, some of them have a global overlay to them. Others don't. The bottom line is that there is at the same time happening right now, some concerted efforts to ban certain books and I have to say that it appears that most of the banning is targeted toward authors of color and those who are LGBTQ. And I don't know how that has played out in your library. It's there. As it turns out, in some places, there are laws now uh, that have banned certain books, and librarians have quit, actually, because they don't want to be dictated to in the way that they are required to do. Is this something you have seen, um, your response to it? I just want to get uh, get your sense of of what's happening, you know, certainly outside of Boston, but I am unaware of what might be happening in Greater Boston, Veronica.
4: Well, I mean, I I have to say, first of all, I've I've been very fortunate in not having had to deal with any book challenges myself in my library career. I think it's it's incredibly sad what we've been seeing happening across this country, you know, and, and this is not a new phenomenon, but I think that we in New England in the Northeast tend to kind of have a unfortunately self-congratulatory attitude towards, well, you know, that doesn't happen here. I think it does happen here, but in more subtle ways, you know, the freedom to have books on the shelf that reflect the diversity of all of our library patrons is so incredibly important. And I think that we can't, we can't relax and sit back and say, oh, that only happens in Alabama. I guarantee you that there are people in this city also who would love to get books off of our shelves and may do so in more subtle ways. Sometimes you see a book that has a remarkable tendency to go lost. You know people people just check it out and never bring it back. It's not getting challenged. It just disappears somehow. And so I think that it's really important for us to to stay vigilant to to uh, about protecting the the freedom to read, the freedom to have these books on our shelves.
1: All right, Susanna.
0: Yeah, again, like Veronica, I feel very lucky to be working in a place that raises the voices that often get removed from the conversation. At the same time, I'm aware that that's not the case everywhere. Um, But I just, it's a foundation of library service that we provide intellectual freedom. And I, you know, I look to organizations like the American Library Association to, you know, pound that idea home to everyone. Um, But also to everyone out there, I just encourage you to, take those books out. Those circulation statistics drive what we purchase for the library. They prove that the authors that are being banned other places are not obsolete um, and that they are in demand. So do what you can in in your community to, you know, make your voice heard,
2: that all voices need to be heard.
1: And Robin, teen books in particular seem to be under attack.
2: Yes, I think that's something I'm very well aware of. Um, I've also noticed a lot more the challenges against comics and graphic novels, um, which are a specific subset, but I think are definitely part of the same sort of mission. Um, And I think for me, it's always been incredibly important as a teen librarian to support the teens that I serve in all the variety that they want and need. As people have said, there are some ways that you can think that it it won't happen here, but I know it has. Um, I've definitely been aware of Challenges in Schools, which is a, a slightly different collection than a public library, but it's yeah we don't want to rest on seeming like it's not going to happen so we've done a lot of discussing just in terms of making sure that all of our policies are clear in terms of our collections and how we how we build them but um but i'm always going to step up for the teens and their freedom to read and that same thing is true for teens that the teens that are showing what they love by what they check out are always going to be my first audience and they are you know, if anything, checking out more and more diverse titles every year, I see the huge spikes in what they're interested in. And I, you know, that gives me a little bit of hope, to be honest. But it's, um, it's very distressing to see this happening around the country. And I think we're all kind of preparing for needing to make the argument.
1: Okay, Veronica, let's go return to your list.
4: Sure. I I felt a little left out that I didn't get to hop on the contemporary romance train, so I'm <laughs> going to do that right now with an author who I believe is making the opposite trip from Casey McQuiston. Ashley Hellerin-Blake started out in middle grade and young adult, and I believe her debut adult novel is Delilah Green Doesn't Care, hmm. which is a contemporary romance about a you know somewhat messy You know, mid 20s photographer in New York who has to go back to the small town that she really doesn't want to go home to to photograph her stepsister's wedding. And of course, when she's there, she immediately lays eyes on a person she recognizes immediately as one of her stepsister's mean girlfriends from high school. And the former mean girlfriend does not remember her and hits on her in the bar. So they have this. Immediate connection that is somewhat complicated by by history that only one of them initially remembers. But I really really enjoyed how the novel kind of explores their shared history and the idea that both of them felt like the felt that the other person was in the wrong when
3: mm-hmm. they were
4: in high school. And as you read through their perspective, you could say, oh yeah, I, I can fully understand why, you know, you in high school thought that this person was being horrible to you. And at the same time, that person thought that she was being horrible to you. Um, and how they how they can get past get past that together. Um, there was a also a really strong uh, focus on female, female friendships, um, as you would maybe expect in a bride's sister and bride's best friend novel. I was Really pleasantly surprised the the love interest is a single mother and the her child was surprisingly well developed I don't generally in romance the kid characters are kind of like useful props. Mm-hmm. that show up when, when you need them and then when you don't need them, like they're never inconvenient. They never like wake up in the middle of the night needing anything. They <laughs> never call to say, actually this sleepover has gone wrong and can you please pick me up and interrupt your date? Um, so <laughs> I was I was really impressed by by how well developed the how well well developed the daughter was and um, her relationship with uh, with the protagonist as was important to
1: her relationship with the mother. Okay. Susanna.
4: I always like
0: to add a short story collection to mm-hmm. the mix. So this year I chose Rainbow Rainbow by Lydia Conklin, which comes out at the end of this month. And as the title might hint at the stories in this collection center around queer, trans, and gender non-conforming characters. In one story, for example, a fifth grade class in Lexington, Massachusetts actually orchestrates an Oregon trail reenactment complete with assigned gender roles and costumes And one fearless student named Coco, who is struggling with their own gender identity, stages a protest by showing up dressed as an ox instead. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And in another story, a lesbian couple moves to a conservative town in Wyoming and begins forming this convoluted plan to conceive a child. Uh, The book is just full of these quirky but realistic stories. And they're written with a heightened sense of humor and emotional depth so that each one feels sort of larger than life and very satisfying. Um, Those of you who enjoy Lily King's most recent story collection, Five Tuesdays in Winter, you might enjoy this one.
1: And I will note that uh, this is, again, one of the trends I see as a reader. I don't know if you see it as a librarian, and that is short stories. Short stories seem to have made some kind of wild comeback. There are so many collections, or I feel as though there are. What say you, Susanna?
0: Yeah, I am an avid reader of short stories, often that is a writer's entry point into publishing. They'll start with a short story collection and then uh, move on to a debut novel. So I see that as sort of the product of MFA programs producing these new young writers. So you'll often see, you know, debut story collections from young new writers on the scene, and they are getting a lot more attention and covering a, a vaster experience, a range of experiences
1: though I would say they're harder to write than the long version. But anyway, that's just me. Robin, what's your next pick? I'm going to go in
2: a slightly different direction towards um, horror because I have discovered over the past year or so that I actually do like horror. Um, I used to assume kind of that I wasn't going to like it Um, in that I don't love horror films, but I finally realized what I really like is atmospheric sort of growing dread, like vibes in horror. Um, Mm -hmm. And I should, for full disclosure, say that I actually know this author, um, but this book was a delight for me to read. And that's My Dearest Darkest by Kayla Cottingham. It's a dark academia sort of uh, setting. It's uh, set in Maine, and it's about a new transfer student named Finch, who arrives at Ullaloom Academy. And this, at the very beginning of the book, you get this very dramatic opening chapter in which her parents and she are caught in a car accident and appear to drown, um, but she comes back, and it's a little bit unclear as to why or how. And it's a little bit Lovecraftian. There's the kind of you know gods and creeping horror from the deep going on in this book Um, but there's also a great romance that's a kind of enemies to lovers style sapphic romance between finch and one of the more popular girls, selena at the academy and i just really love that kind of setup where you have a growing mystery that you're starting to unravel. I like the way that the gods are presented, the kind of the the ultimate power that you realize is far worse than you originally assumed. Um, And uh, there's a little bit of body horror. That's something you'd have to get used to. Everyone has their own things that will totally unnerve them. Um, For me, anything to do with eyes is very unnerving, and there's a bit of that in here, just as fair warning. But I love a good creeper sort of of a story. And I really liked the atmosphere in this one, um, as well as a really solid romance by the end. The other thing that's nice about this is this is ultimately about people winning. So it's like it's it heads towards positive ending.
1: Well, I was just going to add that uh, on uh, Under the Radar, we've talked about the rise in popularity of horror films. So this plays right into that trend. I mean, it's hugely popular now, so that will not be something I'll be reading because that would be up all night. Uh, <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with librarians Susanna Boristan-Tukach, Robin Brenner, and Veronica Coven-Mattese. In this special one-hour discussion, we're talking about books you need to have on your radar this summer. Back to you, Veronica.
4: Sure, I you know maybe maybe I'll hop on this train too. Um, I feel like it's not it's not under the radar with Kelly Crossley unless I recommend a book by Sylvia Moreno Garcia. Um- <laughs> <laughs> my third year running.
3: Um,
4: so this is a book that actually comes out in like mid mid, late July. So it's not out yet, but it's something to put on your radar, maybe pre-order at the library. Silvia Moreno-Garcia's uh, upcoming book is The Daughter of Dr. Moreau, which as you can probably tell from the title is a take on H.G. Wells's The Island of Dr. Moreau. It's a historical setting. Again, as you would expect from Silvia Moreno-Garcia, it is set in Mexico. Um, 18th century Mexico. I, I finally read Mexican Gothic this year after several years of going, well, that's that's horror and I'm not going to like it. And then I loved it. It was so good. And I thought that this one sounds also very similar, kind of creeping unease. You know, if if you're not into horror, then maybe give it a pass. But also I thought I wouldn't be into horror at all. And I I'm very excited about
1: this one. Okay. Susanna.
4: I have a graphic
0: memoir on my list. It is called Messy Roots, a graphic memoir of a Wuhanese American Hmm. by Laura Gao. And it's written for a teen audience, but could be enjoyed by any age. And it's a graphic memoir of the author herself, Laura Gao, who was born in Wuhan, China, before Wuhan became this household name at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. At the age of four, Gao immigrated to Texas, where she had a dizzying experience trying to fit into a primarily white community. She sort of finds her groove playing basketball, but even there struggles with looking different and facing constant microaggressions and just overt racism from her teammates and classmates. And the book moves between Wuhan and Texas and eventually San Francisco, where Gao finally starts to embrace her complex identity as a queer Asian-American only to then be confronted with the burgeoning anti-Asian racism as the pandemic became politicized. So this book tackles some obviously timely and difficult topics, but it's at the same time filled with humor and hope and just really beautiful illustrations and colors. And those who have enjoyed graphic memoirs like Spinning by Tilly Walden and American Born Chinese by Jean Luen Yang, which is actually alluded to in this book, um, you might enjoy this one.
1: All right. Um, what we know statistically is that a lot of the young adult books, Robin, you know this, are read by adults. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're very popular among adults. So what's your next pick?
2: <laughs> um, I'm going to go actually with the graphic novel um, since I haven't had a chance to talk about one yet. But there is one that that came out this year called Squire uh, by Nadia Shamas and the Sar- Sarah Alphagi. This one is For me as a younger reader, I was one of those kids that loved books about being knights and turning into kind of, you know, a fighter for some purpose. And of course, that that isn't really an option in in the modern world. Um, But I grew up reading a lot of those books about For example, the Tamora Pierce Alana books about a girl who disguises herself as a boy in order to become a knight and all of the kind of ways you prove yourself to become a thing that you've been told you're not supposed to. And what I love about Squire is that the two creators are Palestinian American and Jordanian American, and they're using the kind of setting that's kind of Middle Eastern North Africa. It's an alternate history setting. And it's a young girl named Aiza, who is always dreamed of becoming a knight and thinks of it as this great honor, and is determined to become a squire in order to prove that they can do it. But she is part of a people called the Ornu, who are subjugated by the empire under which she lives. So she would not be allowed to be that thing. Um, So she decides to hide her heritage and join anyway. Um, And that, of course, leads to a lot of tension. But then what I love about the story is that it, it initially starts where you're kind of getting into the idea and seeing all the different people going through the academy, essentially, to become knights, to become a squire, to get that far. But it's a lot more complicated and gets a lot more complicated as it goes. And I liked the complexity that's addressed in the story amongst the group of the young people that are all competing, um, but at the same time learning to support each other and also starting to see that the adult world is a lot more complicated than they thought, um, that that the people they think of as being in control or being uh, reliable may not be. So it's a, Beautifully drawn, beautifully written. It's also fairly substantial. Uh, a lot of people, I think, think of graphic novels as being about 150 pages. This one is over 300, wow. and it really
1: is rich and beautiful. Hmm. All right. Well, that sounds like a, a definitely a winner. I want to just get your quick takes on the ongoing discussion about ebooks versus paper books. Seen any changes, uh, any that might have been shaped by the COVID experience? are about equal? What? What are you seeing, Veronica?
4: Well, I mean, definitely at the start of the pandemic, when people were, some people were in lockdown, we definitely saw a huge surge in the popularity of ebooks and interesting, a slight drop off in the popularity of audiobooks because people weren't commuting as much. I think now that the city has opened back up again, we're still seeing ebooks are convenient, audiobooks, again, have, have a huge appeal, especially for people who are commuting, maybe driving in their car. You can't really do much besides listen. But paper books are definitely coming back. And I think we've seen, you know, like the Pew, Pew Research Institute has done studies on this, and people do all things being equal, tend to prefer the physical experience of reading a paper book. Obviously, there there are convenience factors. Like, I personally... Also, I prefer reading a paper book, but you know, if I'm home in bed and I just want to download something right now, yeah, I'll, I will read that ebook, no problem. I can check that out right now. But definitely as libraries reopen, we're also seeing physical books are a big driver for browsing because it's very difficult to duplicate the experience, like the serendipity of just going to the library, going to a shelf and finding something that you wouldn't necessarily have known to look for. So I do think that paper is here to stay, but also I think there's a lot of people who discovered that, in fact, they could get ebooks from their library during the pandemic who maybe didn't realize that before, and they're also not going to go away. Um, So it's great. Read in whatever format is best for you.
1: <laughs> just read, <laughs> uh, Susanna. What what's your take?
0: Yeah, well, I had a feeling you would ask this question, so I looked <laughs> at a little market watch before this, and I saw that there, yeah, print books are still outselling eBooks um, by many fold. Um, I think they appeal just generally, like Veronica said, um, all other factors removed more to people than eBooks. That said, there's a question of accessibility. We found when we closed the library that not everyone has a reliable device or a reliable internet or phone service to access eBooks. On the other hand, eBooks provide accessibility to those who might have vision impairment. So there are a lot of, you know, things factoring into which one is uh, more appropriate for any given person.
1: Very good. Robin.
2: Certainly among teens, I think print is still the the preferred format. Um, they will always browse much more easily in, in the print setup. Although I do see a lot more teens using audiobooks and print at the same time. Um, that's something I know I do and other people do. I'm a huge fan of audiobooks, so I will always talk about that with teens and, and also note to them if I'm telling them about books, which books have a good audiobook. But I think at this point, ebooks and print and audiobooks, any way you can get it. What I found is that everybody is also a lot more adept at using the different catalogs and going to different libraries. Um, For example, in Brookline, we're very close to Boston. So people go back and forth between the two and use all the systems they can to get whatever book they want as fast as possible. Um, So I've been intrigued by how very complicated people are in terms of doing all that kind of going back and forth between the different formats and different ways to request books.
1: I just want to remind everybody that this discussion is part of our monthly discussion about books, because we love books, paper and otherwise, which we call Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And that all of your lists, including some of my picks, will be online for you to refer to for the rest of the summer as you go about picking I have just enough time for each of you to pick one, but not do much explanation. So starting with you, Veronica.
4: <laughs> All right, sure. I will go in the in the vein of Robin's last pick with Stardust Thief by Chelsea Abdullah. This is an Arab fantasy for adults written by an Arab-American author, which is pretty hard to find. Inspired by 1001 Nights, um, it is one of those unlikely band of allies on a dangerous quest together.
1: All right, Susanna.
0: My last pick is Yerba Buena by Nina LaCour, and I'll summarize it just in a few words. Um, It's a young adult, adult crossover, troubled adolescence, Los Angeles food scene, (laughs) a slow burn queer romance coming out May 31st.
2: All righty. Okay, Robin. Well, I'm going to mention one that I am looking forward to, but I haven't had a chance to read yet, which is Love Radio by Ebony Labelle, which is about one teen who's proclaimed himself to be the expert on all things relationships and can get all romances perfect. And then the girl that he meets who has zero interest and she gives him three dates in order to convince her that it's worth a relationship. So it's just looks like a ton of fun and I'm looking forward to it.
1: Well, this was a ton of fun, as always, and I always look forward to this discussion, and I thank you all for joining me.
2: Thank you for having thank us. Thank you. It's yeah, always a highlight you. of my summer.
1: <laughs> Susanna Borsten, Takach is the senior librarian at the Cambridge Public Library. Robin Brenner is the teen librarian at the Public Library of Brookline. And Veronica Coven-Mattesee is a reader services librarian at the Boston Public Library. That's it for our 2022 one-hour summer reading special of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Jubilee and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.